You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. Here's Jessica Jones' Netflix series. We were introduced to a character which comic book fans have long been familiar with, Luke Cage. Or as he was originally known, Power Man. Created during the rise of black exploitation movies and such, he was originally known as the Hero for Hire, which is why this idea gets tossed around several times during Cage's own Netflix series, which recently released. Cage has his ups and downs in comics. The predominantly white Marvel staff have not always known how to properly represent him, though in recent years he has been given more respect to the point of leading his own teams, including the Avengers and Thunderbolts. And with these Netflix series leading up to the Defenders series, it's possible he may take on a lead for that group as well, though his on-screen personality does not really lean that way. While he's often written as calm yet powerful in the comics, the Netflix series has portrayed him as unsure of himself, as the unwilling hero of his own story. I'm not saying that's wrong or should have been done differently, but rather that it may not make him believable in a leadership role. Though that's getting ahead of ourselves. Before Defenders comes out, we still have Iron Fist, which is expected in the spring of next year. Not that he's expected to be anything other than comic relief, let's be honest. But I digress. Luke Cage was an important series for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because it took a section of New York, Harlem, and made it a character in the story. Its people feel real, and a large part of that is because of the stellar cast, with the few exceptions. As we're both quite active on social media, it wasn't surprising when the conversations turned racist, with folks actually complaining that the series was racist, due to the few white cast members, a logic that's beyond idiotic. But what bothered me more were the people who felt that admitting on social media that they were good people and didn't think they were racist, but that the series made them uncomfortable because there were so few non-minority cast members, that this act of bravery, and yes, I'm using air quotes here like you wouldn't believe, of admitting just like everyone else that they too were a little racist, these people can go to hell. Whether overtly or coyly, there is no room for racism in this conversation other than what is portrayed in the series. The series in and of itself is not racist for focusing on black people in a predominantly black neighborhood. In a rare instance, Marvel actually did the right thing as it pertains to casting. Again, with a couple notable exceptions, which we'll get into shortly. Now, I know from our many years of working on the Comic Book and Forward podcast... That they're, you're like a huge Luke Cage fanboy. Why don't you tell the folks where that started from and what you've taken from the character from the comics and how it kind of fits in with the series as well? I think in a lot of ways the series is just taking the first steps to what I like so much about the comic character. Because, yes, like you said, the comic character has been around since the 70s and it was... trying to think of the right way to phrase this but it was basically he was designed as a cash-in and like you said on the black exploitation craze you know marvel wanted their shaft so they made luke cage so those comics really don't hold up by today's standards no. because a lot of the characters and the way the characters are portrayed like they actually couldn't use most of uh cage's most notable early villains just because it it can't be done (laughs) like they are such racist characters you're better off just scrapping it all together and going with other stuff but it was i i started liking the character when brian bendis was writing him uh when he showed up in uh, the jessica jones series alias and then like i really started to to enjoy the character when he showed up in the new avengers and how he was written this incredibly confident 
not yet a leader at that point, but you can definitely see how that character grew into a leadership position once Captain America and Iron Man weren't involved with the team anymore. And just, it was something I was so unused to seeing as a fan of modern comics, you know, a capable, confident minority character. Like you got Luke Cage and you got Storm and Black Panther, but Black Panther wasn't really around when I was reading a lot of comics for the most part. Like he hasn't really risen to that level until like very recent years. So it it just enamored me so much. And then going back and reading some old comics, I've always been a fan of Iron Fist. So reading those old team ups of Power Man and Iron Fist and seeing how the character evolved over the years, like I just really liked that they took a character that should not have existed past the 70s and made him into a focal point. As as far as how he's in the show, we're still seeing those formative points of him being that confident in his abilities. Like you, you saw he needed pushes at pretty much every stage of the story, either from Pop or from Claire or from, you know, the locals. He he was very reluctant until the very end of the series. And even then he was being pushed by Cottonmouth. So it's not until like the very end of the series when he, you know, he starts taking responsibility for himself by turning himself in essentially that you see the first steps to what I relate to in his comic character. Yeah, see, I'm still not seeing the the comic character in the portrayal or how it's written, and I'm all right with mm-hmm. that. I'm, I'm very oh, much yeah, all right it, with that. Oh, there's growing phases. It's kind of like, again, each of the other series that we've talked about, as well as the, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well with the movies, wherein there are some very notable differences between the characters and who they are in the comics as well. And when done properly it kind of can course correct a lot of what Marvel has done wrong in the mm-hmm. past. Unfortunately, we've seen far too many movies where that's not the case to the point of even taking steps backwards by casting white characters in minority roles. So this here, putting this character front and center, which again, front and center, a black superhero headlining their own series is huge, and Mike Coulter does a great job. I really, really, I liked him as Iron Man, or sorry, as a Power Man in um, Jessica Jones, mm-hmm. and to, to me, he was one of the things that I liked the most about it. Not, I shouldn't say the most, but we've already discussed the issues that particularly I had a lot with, with Jessica Jones, and he was just a great character, and that's why I liked him. And it, that's his portrayal of the character here in the series is... He's also very he he's a learned man. Like he he's very he knows the history. He's he reads a lot. And like he's he's a good character. Whereas in the seventies, he was very much portrayed as the stereotypical angry black man. Like what we see of him, especially in the flashbacks when he was in prison, of you know, he just head down, he wanted to serve his time, he didn't want to get involved. Whereas in the early comics, like he was full of rage and he was given Marvel's propensity for ratcheting up a lot of their comics back in the day. He, he was not portrayed in anything remotely of a good light. Like you say he was, he was the angry black man that people should have feared back in the seventies. And he's very much not that in the series. And a lot of that is due to the writing, but also Coulter's performance. One of the things that I like about what you just said is something that I have pointed out not just online, but when I'm talking to people about the series as well, too, is that he's a well-read black man on TV, which you don't see a lot of. They're mm-hmm. Far too often they are pigeonholed into specific roles, which often portray them as thugs on the street or in various acts of criminal activities, whereas here we have this man who is not just he himself well-read, but sitting down at the barber shop, talking with other black men about different novels, about different, you know, about literature and things like that. And I loved, loved that. That was, again, taking a step away from stereotypes and instead writing the show in a very diverse way where there are black criminals in the show. There mm-hmm. are um, black, uh, like the women as well, where you have the the Misty Knight for the the cops and then uh dillard for 
you know, corrupt politician who eventually becomes uh, far worse than that. So you have an incredible amount of complexity to the to the writing, which then, when put in the right actor's hands, can lead to incredible performances. The problem that I found, which I've read other people say as well, is that while the writing is often quite good and also something that does not just empower black people and other minorities, but also women to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Like the women steal this series, let's be honest. Absolutely. And that's because most of, like there was a bunch of women writing uh, as well as black women writing on the, the staff for this. So you wound up getting fantastic scenes. And then the, the creator for the show as well, I read an interview with him, um, Chio Hodari Cocker. He was talking about how the women weren't just brought in to write the scenes with the other women, be mm-hmm. it Misty or, or whoever. They wrote a lot of the other stuff, like all the stuff that you see with the boxing flashbacks and whatnot was written by one of the female writers because she was a boxer. So you have these fantastic complexities. The only problem arises from the fact that I think that maybe not all of the writers, but some of them especially really like the sound of their own voices or rather the sound of their writing. And you have these ridiculous monologuing scenes where people just talk too long. One of the best quotes that I uh, read about this was from uh, Maureen Ryan for Variety, and she wrote, where the drama tends to stumble is in the meandering expositional scenes, which quite often go on too long and drain the show of momentum. When high-caliber actors such as Mahir Shala, I'm probably butchering that, Ali, the guy who played Cottonmouth, and Alfrey Woodard can't make a long dialogue scene work. The problem is in the writing, not the performances. And that's very, very much true. The mm-hmm. The one that struck me the most for that was the scene with Cottonmouth where they put him over the picture, the big picture he has of Biggie Smalls with the, the crown. Had they filmed it properly where the the picture is never brought up, and you have that scene where he's talking about something different, where he's framed as if he's wearing the crown. That would have been brilliant. But instead, they chose to knock you over the head with it by explaining the, the visual that you're seeing. <laughs> and that, to me, was a huge failing. And unfortunately, that happened a little too often. And then you're left with these scenes where that could have been subtle and and fantastic, but instead we're bludgeoning you over the head. Yeah, like the the show almost entirely beginning to end was wonderfully shot. Like the cinematography, the camera angles, a lot of that was phenomenal. But yeah, I agree where like a lot of, especially with um, a lot of the flashback scenes involving Luke and Diamondback, where it was just like, yeah, we get it. (laughs) Like I I knew where the story was going 20 minutes before they told me where it was going. That the visual storytelling was that good and they should have just let it speak for itself. See, I found the, while not confusing was convoluted, the stuff with diamondback and we'll get to that. I'm not saying the story itself was good, but visually it was told better than it was in spoken word. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the, the, one of the other things that I did like about the show, um, which is something that's important when you're looking at, such a primetime, big cultural event, which now the Netflix series, that's what they've become. People mm-hmm. just devour these things in a matter of a few days, if that. <laughs> and it's become something that we talk about for a long time. And I love this because it allowed us to talk about various race relationships as well. There was actually a really good interview a few days ago. It wasn't too long, and unfortunately, it wasn't with the main host of The Daily Show. Uh, it was He was off six, so it was one of the other guys who still was good. But they had Mike Coulter on, and he was talking about the show, and he was talking about they didn't intend for it to be a reflection of what is currently going on with the... Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. with the police brutality that's going on, it just happened that that's what was going on at the same time. And so they worked it into the the series as well. And so you have this wonderful dialogue of 
things that are very relevant to what is actually going on in society right now. And I really like that. Yeah, it, it's just weird how those things work out, but also good on them to lean into it instead of away from it. Yeah. The only thing that I did not like about it, however, and and it's it's actually simply because it didn't make sense. I know how they tried to make it make sense, but it didn't, is the scene where you have Alfred Woodard's um, Dillard, who is has that press conference with the young man that was beat up, mm-hmm. and she's saying that the cops need better weapons. <laughs> he was beat up by a cop. She's having this press conference in front of the police station, but she's twisting it to put the blame on Luke Cage and by virtue of that, encouraging the police force or people to accept that the police need more stronger bullets. And to me, that struck me as so wrong, especially in this time that you would be advocating for police, even in the the context of this fictional show, the police to have better weapons and you're holding beside you a kid that was beat up by a cop. That didn't work for me at all. I mean, it just ties into the whole convoluted storylines with Diamondback where like the first half of the series was so good and there was still plenty of good in the second half, but it wasn't involving the main plot. Like Diamondback threw a lot of things off track and Mariah was definitely one of them. Yeah, well, I, again, we'll get into it as we get into the story, but yeah, Diamondback for me, Diamondback and Shades, let's be honest. (laughs) <laughs> Neither one of those needed to be in the story in that God Dex. And, and Diamondback, I found that just ruined so much of the story. You had so many amazing elements going on between Cage and Misty, Cage and Claire, Cage and Pop and the men in the shop. Even the stuff with, with Cottonmouth, the stuff with him was great especially when you're looking at the flashbacks and you're looking at his relationship with Dillard, who is his cousin, you've got some really, really strong stuff that they could have somehow stretched longer to keep him as the focal focal villain, much like they did with uh, Kingpin for, for uh, the first season. I mean, it's exactly what we said about Jessica Jones. How much more effective would the purple man have been if he'd been in the background for most of the series? Like early on when Diamondback was just like this mythical person, like in the background, he was a lot more effective as a character than once he was actually on screen to the point where when he showed up, I'm like, okay, cool. Who's this guy? And he said, Oh, I'm Diamondback. I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Diamondback (laughs) hires people to do this shit for him. You know, (laughs) well, the whole thing too, with the, him wanting revenge because he got slighted by his, by their father mm-hmm. was just utter ridiculousness. It was boys trying to argue about who their daddy, who loved more kind of thing. And, and it just I was mean, stupid as hell. It's, it's an effective character motivation, but not to that degree. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Cottonmouth or I'm sorry. Diamondback doesn't like Luke. Okay, I can see that. But taking it as far as he did was no. Yeah. The the show starts off, of course, with with Cage, and you are seeing how he's trying to keep that low profile, and he's working both at the barbershop as well as a dishwasher come bartender at Harlem's Paradise. And Harlem's Paradise becomes a very central focus throughout the entirety of the series as well, and just becomes yet another thing element of Harlem that lives and breathes. And and a large part of that isn't just because of all the interactions that go on in there, but yet another aspect of this, this series that excels is the music. And mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense when you look at where um, Cocker's coming from, former music journalist, it, the music is infused in this series. And I read somebody say, we haven't seen this since Guardians of the Galaxy. And I was trying to... I would go even farther than that. This this one-upped Guardians. Like, oh, Guardians yeah. used the music as a set piece, whereas Luke Cage, you know, it was part of the culture of not just the show, but, you know, the area they were representing. Yeah, because when you're getting each of those, be it an audition or a practice or a performance later on, is never just set dressing. There's a reason for it, and the the, the musicians that are there playing are alive it's not just again said dressing that you just go damn that's good music i like that no it's 
part of the narrative. And I absolutely adored that. And so anyways, very early on, like very early on, <laughs> Cage and Misty kind of hook up, not kind of. And this was when it was funny because I was watching with my wife and we're sitting there. And as the sex scene is going further and further, you're going, God damn, <laughs> they're not holding back on this one, are they? But what I liked and what a lot of other people liked as well, too, is that it really sets up Misty Knight as a character. Because, mm-hmm. again, she's not written as, she's not slut-shamed for hooking up for a one-night stand. She's the one that dictates the terms of if anything will come of this later on. And she's the one that walks away leaving him in bed. Um, when they are seen later on having conversations, her discomfort is never at the fact that she slept with him, but rather that he's seen as a suspect for so long. That's what bothers her. Mm-hmm. And you see so much about her as a character leading forward about her devotion to her job, how kick-ass she is, and and things like that. I Again, it was, it was funny when you're watching it initially and you're going, oh, okay. But they build on it so beautifully and then it's like, yeah, this... This is the character, someone who is doesn't have time necessarily for or interest in a relationship and is still got so much complexity to her character that, again, it, it makes sense in that moment. And it set her up beautifully. I, I need a Misty Knight series after this. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. I, in, in a show full of amazing performances, she was near the top. Yeah. Well... I am really hoping, and I don't know, but I'm hoping that when Defenders comes out, that it will not simply be um, Luke and Jessica and Mm -hmm. Iron Fist and and Daredevil, but that it will include Misty Knight and Claire, because these are insanely important characters that can thrive in a a setting like that as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So then you have the the gun deal gone bad, and that's essentially what starts off the whole problem as well, too. That bartender that he replaced early on was gone to try to steal the gun, steal the money, as well as one of the kids from the barbershop as well. So it kind of, there's a few too many coincidences there, but it still kind of works out anyways. And it sets up all of the, the players here. You also get the introductions to Shades, who I think we can both agree is probably the weakest character in the entire series. Um, no. He's up there. <laughs> oh, I see him as worse. I, uh, God, I hated him. Every I, time I saw him. Not, not just the concept of shades. <laughs> I was like, oh, my fucking Lord, are you kidding me? I thought we were trying to get away from stupid comic book bullshit here. But also, I really didn't dig the acting for it I, at all. So that's the thing. I'm trying to to separate of if if it's the character or just how much I hate that actor because I hated him in Sons of Anarchy too. So like I I don't know where my dislike for Shades originates, and it's probably a total of all the parts. Yeah, we also get uh, Maria Dillard, who is played amazingly by mm-hmm. Alfred Woodard. Oh my God, that woman is incredible. We've he, always, in my eyes, the best character in the show. Her and and Misty and Claire were my favorites, in all honesty. I, I preferred all three of those to even mm-hmm. Mike Coulter. Um, they were just... Uh, not to sell so, Coulter, Coulter short. <laughs> it's not. But you can have somebody who delivers a great performance mm-hmm. and is outshined by these other characters. And yeah, like Alfred Woodard, when you look at her performance, yet another thing that, that Cocker talked about in, in his interview, she is essentially Michael Corleone who's trying to get mm-hmm. out of the family business and just winds up getting deeper and deeper into it kind of thing. And Alfred has this great personality, like her expressions when you are, are looking at her and immediately you're seeing that she has this really, she has a trouble with what is going on and she wants to do right by Harlem. She really does. But she's not above taking money where she shouldn't, and even if that's going to try to make it better kind of thing. And as it progresses further and further, to the point of madness at one point there, you you believe her, and, and you see the cues that something is going to happen soon because she's such a damn fine actress. 
it's it's just amazing how how much depth she gave in her performance. Like, yeah. Because I never knew what she was going to do because that character was torn in so many different directions, and she portrayed it so well. Every time she did something, it was both shocking and completely justified. Yeah. And of course, Marshala Ali as Cottonmouth was also great. Now mm-hmm. he was one that initially, when I saw him, I thought, mm, "We'll see." I mean, his it, it seemed to rely too much on the stereotypes that we've come to see of the black criminal empire leader kind of thing, and trying to act cool all the time. But then, as you get a lot more of his backstory as well, and especially when you're seeing him at that keyboard, mm-hmm. his performance was riveting. I loved it, and when you get to the scene where and I'm getting ahead of us here, but most of the people listening to this will probably watch it already. When you get to see to the scene where he is confronting her to the point of saying that she enjoyed being molested by the uncle character in the flashbacks and she loses it on him. Both of those performances, because not it wasn't just hers. Hers was great as well. Her mm-hmm. was spectacular, like literally Emmy-worthy in my opinion. But <clears throat> when you're seeing him as well and that that bravado and that, that cruelty that, and confidence, which immediately then turns into fear for his life and, and things like that, it was so well done. Unfortunately, gets ruined by shades showing up again, <laughs> fucking shit up, trying to take control. But the the entirety of that scene, and with her, then when she gets downstairs and she is wigging out, losing it, was for me that was the scene in in this entire series that was the hall fight scene in the first season of Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Th- that's the scene that that I'm gonna remember always for this series, and and I'm all right with that because it was so well done. But I, I think it plays into the traditional issue of the Netflix series, and that's pacing. That this felt like it should have taken place near the end of the show instead of being the midpoint to bring in you know the bigger villain that we all dislike. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. I completely agree with that. Yes. Completely. Agree like with if that. this had happened in episode you know eleven or twelve as like one of the more climactic moments of the series instead of a great scene in the middle uh, that just kind of transitions the story from act two to act three, it it loses a lot of its effect in the overall narrative. Yeah. And it's not like they needed a bigger bad guy. <laughs> Cottonmouth is not a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. We're all right with that. And not just that, but what I liked about the character as you got to know him as well was that once again, we go back to the complexity of the writing. He still had some lines even he would not cross, like going after Pop. Mm-hmm. And so when you get the scene where... Pops when is, he threw that dude off the roof. When he threw the, exactly. <laughs> You're like, not only do I completely believe that, but I actually believe him when he's going to pay for the funeral service and, do, and doing all that, mm-hmm. that he justifiably regrets what has happened. Not necessarily taking ownership of it because he's not the one that killed him, but he regrets deeply that it did happen. And again, that shows a tremendous amount of complexity to the character. And it's just so fascinating to have a villain that is so honorable. Like, he's still a terrible person doing bad things, but it, it has that spark. Like, you know, what makes characters like Magneto so interesting decades later is they have that spark of, I don't want to say goodness, but relatability to them that makes those characters enduring. And that's why just wiping him out in episode eight or was it even seven. God, it just, it, I, I feel it was the biggest tragedy of the series. I, I, I completely agree. The moment that they brought in diamond back again, the show took a downfall and, and not just a little one either. There, there were points where if I had not been as invested as I was in the characters, I might have brushed it off and said, yeah, Whatever, I, I don't need to finish this. And I actually follow a couple of people on Twitter, intelligent people, some of them who write as well, mm-hmm. kind of went, no, nah, I'm clocking out at this episode, yeah, like, and they've had it. For me, the road trip to Georgia tied, tried my patience a lot. <laughs> Just, oh, yeah. It, for, for how it killed the pacing, and like it was a lot of unnecessary screen time, I felt. Well, see, the thing with that, too, that bothers me is that I accept that you are taking 
a comic book story and trying to put it on the screen. And I accept that the writers are going to try to include some of those comic book elements in there. And I don't just mean some of the quirky, goofy things to pay homage to it, like when they put him in the, the yellow T-shirt and tiara and, and pants yeah, kind that, of thing. That's a fun little That bit. was a that's, cute, yeah. funny thing. But when they take tropes from comic books and try to apply it here, like the evil scientist doctor that's experimenting on people and creating them. Okay, maybe the first time when you're seeing the flashbacks in prison and you're going, all right, when they're going back to him and, and like, working out of a barn in a freaking vat full of acid, and you're going, seriously? Because that's some pretty high-tech equipment around that mm-hmm. place, too. And then when he destroys the the, 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 the equipment and, and presumably the computer, and you're going... See, this is a stupid, lazy trope. Anybody knows all you got to do is take the freaking hard drive out of there (laughs) and the data is still there. You dented a case. That's all you did. And then, spoiler, at the end, when the doctor shows up to freaking empower the villain, because apparently that's what mad scientists do. They don't go looking for somebody who's a reasonable person who's nearing death. No, we'll go after the villain. (laughs) Here's it the thing made that, no sense. That, so the way they're justifying it is the the little almost throwaway line that there must be something about Luke's DNA that made you know the the experiment successful. So it makes narrative sense that he would go for his half brother because maybe they have the same thing. But it's one of those things that just pisses me off so much in storytelling in general that there's you know something special about this person. Yeah. That yeah. you know there if anybody if it had been anybody else like they're born to be this hero like that's. It's taking the Steve Rogers thing in the wrong way. Like, it's not Steve Rogers' DNA that made him, you know, the one capable of succeeding. It was Steve Rogers, like, who he was as a person that made, you know, the super soldier, his transformation to Captain America work. So, like, it's it happens so frequently in movies and TV and games that, like, it's one of those things that just immediately, like, pisses me off and takes me out of the story that, oh, he's only special because of a happenstance of birth and not anything that he does himself. Yeah, I agree. And one of the other things that they did differently with this as well is, I mean, Cage in the comic books wasn't a cop. And here they made mm-hmm. him not just a cop, but also a former Marine as well. And like an elite forces Marine as well. But those things are just kind of tossed out. Yeah. And you don't get a lot of backstory in that. Like and we still wh- don't know exactly how he was framed. No. I, I would assume that's something they hope to come back to because we saw you know bobby fish another fantastic supporting character oh, yeah. you know, picking up that 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 file but like we needed at least a little a bit of explanation it's like oh yeah i was framed how and, and they keep bringing it up and they like just something like there there had to have been a, a a breadcrumb in that trail in the series for it to have any meaning for me more so than that was this idea of making him a cop, and yet when you're watching the series, none of his actions scream mm-hmm. out cop. None. He he was really make a really crappy cop. Let's be honest. <laughs> he was not the best at following clues around and things like that. And he needed a lot of help from other people to get shit done. For a guy who's bulletproof and strong as hell, he certainly needed a lot of help getting shit done, which I'm all right with. But then don't throw in this thing that he's an ex-cop and 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 marine. It just didn't work. And it didn't work also for me in terms of the the fight choreography. Now, I say that because if you strip out the fact that he is was a cop and Marine, then the fight scenes make perfect sense. And I loved it. And mm-hmm. I actually had this discussion with a few people online because he he represents essentially the Superman kind of trope. And then you have Daredevil, who represents kind of the Batman trope. And one of the things that I've enjoyed in a a couple of different comic iterations where they've tried this is where Batman tries to teach Superman how to fight. Because Superman fights like someone who can't be hurt Mm -hmm. and just wails on someone without any finesse. And what Bruce brings up often is what if you lose your power or you come across somebody who's just as powerful as you, then you need that fighting skill. And so here you have, when you're watching him fight, be it in the streets or while he's in prison or whatever, 
there is some finesse, but it is based a lot on boxing and whatnot, which you see in the flashbacks. And it's it loses some finesse as he gets stronger once he's changed because he doesn't have to worry anymore. And he just walks through it all kind of thing. And I really dig that. But if this character was a Marine, elite forces Marine and a cop afterwards, he ain't going to fight like that. There's going to be a lot more precision and it's going to still be a much better choreograph fight scene. Yeah, no and matter I, how strong you are, those instincts don't exactly, go away. Exactly, yeah. And, and I know that seems like a, a very inconsequential thing to some people and that's fine. I appreciate that. But it's actually, for me, something that's fairly important in a, as a plot device because when you're looking at a superhero series or movies, you have to expect that there's going to be a lot of fighting in there. In one way, shape, or form or another, there's going to be fighting of some sort. So that fighting has to make sense. When we look at Civil War, say, everybody had a different fighting style, especially like Black Panther. And I adored that because it made sense. So for this here, when something takes you out during the the fight scenes, that is fairly important to me. So a lot of the stuff culminates again with with Cottonmouth and Dillard early on. And I kind of really dug where this was going too, where he is trying to funnel all the money into her office building <laughs> kind of thing. Again, an element that I personally thought well-written and fun. And then when he walks in, once again, as the unbreakable man, and just kind of walks in and walks out with the bag of money. I thought that was very well done, and it made for a really good episode. That was the third episode, if I'm not mistaken. It was really well done. Yeah, it's – whereas it was – like you said, the uh, the Mariah Cottonmouth scene was like the narrative hallway fight. That was the, you know, literal hallway yeah, yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> With some brutal freaking – special effects there the dude that hits his face although that was at the restaurant when yeah. his hand crumbles you're going oh damn <laughs> and speaking of a restaurant too you get a few scenes and right after that too where the uh, detective scarf who as you find out quite obviously is under cottonmouth's uh, payroll sends the fucking missile down on him that was a little extreme <laughs> I, I, I get that you want to try to take out someone with impenetrable skin, but middle of Harlem, a missile mm-hmm. being sent was a little extreme, but it really set up that episode with him under the rubble with the lady, the landlady, and mm-hmm. then the flashbacks to the fights, the experiments in prison, the treatment, uh, the, 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 like the group treatment stuff and whatnot. And then, of course, a lot of stuff with Reva Connors, Dr. Reaver Connors, who was, as we saw in Jessica Jones, his, which they were married or not married? Mm-hmm. They were married, yeah. So that kind of set up a lot there. And it's it's going to be funny moving forward into, be it season two of Jessica Jones or Defenders, because one of the reasons why Cage and Jess, Jessica Jones weren't together was because he found out that she killed Reva Connors. And so he couldn't forget that. So now knowing that Connors was behind choosing him for these experiments and whatnot may change his mind moving forward. Because while he's had a relationship with with Claire in the comics, Jessica Jones was a woman that he married and and had a child with eventually. And I don't know if they're going to try to keep that for the series as well. Yeah, there's a lot of character dynamics to look forward to when these guys finally do come together. Yeah. And that's that's one of the good things about this long form storytelling as opposed to like the Avengers style is we really get to know the characters. So the team up isn't just like, oh, cool, Captain America and Thor. Like there's a lot to them by the time they finally do get together. Yeah, there was some great stuff here in the second part of, of the series as well. But like we've just been saying, too, I don't feel any of it had to do with with Diamondback. I mean, you had the one scene where he shows up during the meeting of the meeting of the minds with all the criminal guys with uh, with uh, Dillard when she's saying she wants out and he shows up. That was that was interesting, but it quickly went downhill from there. But when you look at everything else that's going on during that time, you've got all of the stuff with Misty investigating Dillard as well, which was always so great. Like when you're seeing Misty. Uh, well, before that, even there was, or was it before or after when she's interrogating Claire as well? 
That was, that was near the end. Yeah, yeah, that was later on. Spectacular. The interrogation, when she's being interrogated as well early on by the quote-unquote counselor, great stuff there with a lot of some flashbacks and different things going on. The stuff with Candace, who is the young girl that was took the payoff to blame Cage for the killing of Cottonmouth as well. You had some great stuff with those characters. You even had fantastic stuff between Claire and her mom. <laughs> And this was something that, again, Cocker was talking about because he was saying how he wanted to introduce a lot of different cultural stuff that you don't necessarily get in these. You don't have the opportunity. So he wanted to have nice depictions of Afro-Cuban culture through Claire and her mother with the different mysticism stuff going on there Mm -hmm. and the beliefs showing that, you know, it's not just Asians who have a lock on mysticism. You can have a lot of different stuff from different parts of the world. And I dug that. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, as like you said, as great of a job as it did with Black American culture, you know, my girlfriend Alicia, she's Puerto Rican, so those scenes with her and her mom and Claire was by far her favorite person in the series because she hadn't seen any of the other Netflix series. Oh, really? Luke Cage is really her introduction. Oh, that's so, too bad. And, and, but so I'm like, you know, this she is the Nick Fury of the Netflix universe. <laughs> so like she she's she's very into it through that character. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's you should definitely get her to watch then the the two seasons of of Daredevil, obviously, because mm-hmm. that woman is spectacular. God, I love her in everything that she does. What's her name again? Rosario uh, Dawson. Yes. Oh God, she's amazing. I, I love her in everything that she does. So yeah, a lot of those relationships and and the relationships between those women, of course, and Cage too, moving forward, were the ones that were the most fun to watch, and that was like. I mean, sure, there's some chase scenes and there's busting through walls and shit and whatnot, but it's the drama and the suspense that were so fun to watch with each of those characters, as opposed to the big balls out fight between Diamondback and and uh, Cage later on. To me, that's where you kind of once again lost grip of where the story should have been going. Mm-hmm. So. That's about it that I've got. Oh, I've got a whole bunch of other stuff, but we don't need to go through everything, every episode individually. But what were some of the like the highlights that you may have wanted to talk about that I didn't touch on? That we haven't already talked about. Um, okay. It's a minor thing, but it, it was such, a, such a, a source of entertainment. Whatever we do with the Iron Fist series, with some of the questionable decisions they've made, they can redeem a lot of it by having Genghis Khan show up in that series as a recurring character. Because <laughs> she was great. <laughs> the stuff with her and Luke and how she, you know, she comes around and like even this, when you know she tries to pay them, like, there, there was a lot to that character that she wasn't just like a one-off comic relief. I, I hope she does show up later on because I, I think they could get a lot out of her. Okay, you lost me now. Who was this again? That was... the, the, the Luke's landlord, the owner of the Chinese oh, right, restaurant. Right, 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 yes. Yeah, she was awesome. I mean, if, if if no other reason than Genghis Khani is a brilliant name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved her. I I I liked the the scenes with them. Obviously, when they're in the rubble and whatnot, and there the, there wasn't enough between the two of them, but there was there was some, and what was there was was nice. And I agree, we need to see a lot more of that woman, and mm-hmm. especially because again, if if for folks who don't actually read comics or have not read those comics. There is a very tight relationship between the characters of Luke Cage and Iron Fist that you see throughout a variety of comics. Initially, and and I didn't realize this, you probably did, but I didn't realize this until I was doing some digging for this episode. Like, um, the Luke Cage series was not doing well. And they were going to cancel it. After the fad died down. Same thing thing with Iron Fist. You know, they were both... uh cashing in on fads, be it black exploitation or kung fu. So they were both kind of flagging in sales. So they went, well, let's give it one more shot. And put them together. Mm-hmm. So that's where you have a lot of the stuff that puts these two unlikely guys together to start this Heroes for Hire and whatnot. So I'm kind of hopeful to see where that's going to lead in not just the Iron Fist series, but in Defenders. Because as different as Cage is from the character in the comics, he's still similar enough that if the character of Danny for Iron Fist is even remotely like Danny in the comics, that's going to be a fun friendship. 
that mm-hmm. it, the potential is there to have a lot of fun with those two guys and i would i would adore seeing that in a netflix series yeah I- We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we've spoken at length about Finn Jones in other places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh god. <laughs> it, it was one of those things for me. Like, it's disappointing, but not surprising to cast a white guy as Danny Rand. Let's be honest. It's just that actor. Like, I don't, I don't see it in any way, shape, or form working. I honestly, I don't either. But the only thing that I keep thinking about is. I didn't picture the little kid who took over Spider-Man as doing a good job. And then we saw a civil war and Mm -hmm. now it's like, Oh my God, I cannot wait until that Spider-Man show. So as much as I hate the idea of not retconning Danny to make him, whether it is um, Asian from somewhere, not us or even an Asian American, which would have worked beautifully and still Mm -hmm. been, fit with the story and all that I, as much as I'm disappointed I'm willing to wait and see what they do with it when it comes out I'll still be pissed off with the casting but he might still make it work yeah I mean we'll see so yeah so again there there's a lot going on for this series that is spectacular unfortunately and and remember these are subjective opinions yours may you may not agree with this but there's so much that is well done in this that it is well worth watching. What's funny is that I was talking to somebody online and they were ranking the four so far mm-hmm. in terms of their favorites. And it just happened that it was the exact opposite, flip opposite of <laughs> my list. Because for me, I still put the first season of Daredevil at number one. And I actually put Luke Cage as my number two. With then the second season of Daredevil is my three and Jessica Jones is number four. And and I stand by that. Those the, That's how I felt about these four so far going forward. What about you? Where do you place this? Uh, I'm in pretty much agreement with you, but that cho- that line between one and two is very thin. I, I think maybe as more time goes by, Luke may eventually rise above Daredevil. Really? Upon, upon further inspection, yeah. E- even the first season, though? Yeah. Because I thought that the first season, and see, I'm going to have to actually start rewatching these now with the, the hindsight of what we've seen so far. But I thought that the first season of Daredevil was far more cohesive start to finish, whereas this got far too disjointed with the addition of Diamondback. And, and that ruins so much of the story moving forward. So I, I think a lot of what does it for me is the difference in the supporting casts. Oh, yeah. Like, as, as great as, uh, God, Woody, Foggy and Karen were, their characters really didn't bloom until season two uh, of Daredevil, whereas in season one, I didn't care for them quite as much, whereas I, it, Luke Cage wasn't just about Luke Cage. Oh, yeah, And yeah, that's, yeah. that, that helped it immensely. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, were it not for um, Simone Missick and Alfred Woodard and Rosario Dawson, this series would not have been anywhere near as good. Not even remotely as good. Those women stole the freaking show, and I am so on board with that. I, I adore it. To the point where, once again, it's not often where I will look at a villain and say, ooh, I can't wait to see you being brought up somewhere else kind of thing. Um, we need... They, they're they're laying her out to be Black Mariah, which I'm assuming is was in the comics. I never read a mm-hmm. lot of them, so she actually popped up in uh, the Power Man and Iron Fist. Did she? Oh, she did. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we read that. So yeah, no, because Diamondback and Cottonmouth are both off the board for modern comics and Shades as well, I believe. Oh God, I can only hope. <laughs> but yeah, so they're setting her up, and I want her to see her again. I, mm-hmm. In such a way, like I, I it's already established that um, that uh, Claire Temple is going to be around for quite a while. So I'm so happy with that. And with Misty Knight going undercover towards the end, which didn't make sense either. Like, I mean, she's going to the same goddamn club, but now nobody's going to recognize her because her hair is up. <laughs> like, what the I, I didn't see that more as going undercover. I, I just felt it more of her. She couldn't let it go. So if, if she can't do it officially, she's she at least wants to keep an eye on what's going on. Like yeah. I didn't see it as her like trying to. The way it's written up is actually undercover. That's mm-hmm. now that said though, 
the moment you see her at the end with the hair up like Misty from the comics. Because mm-hmm. initially... When and even you... her dress is very reminiscent yes, of the yeah, comic, Misty. Yeah, because initially when you see her and you find out that it's Misty, because I didn't know initially. I, it, I was like, wait a minute. That's not like, Misty. I, who is this? And like when she showed up and I was like, holy shit, it's Misty Knight. I, that, that was my take as well. And it was like, okay, well, I like that they changed her up and whatnot, and, and that'll be cool. And then she just, again, she steals every scene that she's in. Mm-hmm. But when you see her at the end and she looks exactly like me so you're going okay now i see where the casting where they were right because I, I, I i'm certain we're going to see a lot more of her going forward because in the comics her romantic relationship with danny rand was pretty important as well as we saw at the end here when claire uh decides she needs to learn how to defend herself yes. she takes the uh, martial arts classes from colleen wing who was misty's partner as the members of the daughter of the dragon yeah. so there's a lot that's hopefully will come together in the iron fist series that will continue misty being important yeah definitely so that's it. Any parting thoughts other than that, or are we moving on? Um, just wanted to give a shout-out to our friends over at All Comics Considered. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to their latest episode, but uh, it's a fantastic discussion about Luke Cage and what it means for black American culture in a way that us two white guys really can't relate to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I haven't listened to it, but now that I know that, I will. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, cool. So you can find the show notes for this, of course, at popcornronin.com. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on Twitter. We are individually uh, Simonian for him and Zen Buddhist for me. And with that, we will see you in a few weeks. We're still juggling what we're going to be talking about, but we have some really good stuff lined up one way or another. So with that, we will talk to you soon. movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. <laughs> <laughs>